Good evening. <laughs> Technical difficulties, but we I think we got it. Good to see everybody tonight. Does everyone have a handout? Does everyone have a handout? All right. Good deal. You can go and open your Bibles to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. Psalm 75. We are continuing our study through the Psalms. And uh, we're making some progress. We've made it all the way to the 75th Psalm in the third book of the Psalms. It's been a while since I've been with you on a Wednesday night. Uh, I've been out of the country and different things going on. So it's good to, good to be back with you and have this time with you. I enjoy this study immensely. And we've got some good stuff tonight uh, to look at. So we're glad that you are uh, here. Glad that you're here. Psalm 75. Uh, before we get into that, uh, I just wanted to remind you of what the Psalms are all about. Uh, the Psalms are in actuality a hymn book. It, it, they're, they're a collection of, or it's a collection of hymns that were designed to be used in the corporate worship of the people of Israel. So it's, the book of Psalms is in reality a hymn book, a 150 hymns. Each chapter is a different hymn. And you need to keep that in mind when you're reading it. The, the people of God, the Israelites, were singing these, these psalms in worship. So it's important to keep that context in mind. And there are some themes woven throughout the entire book of Psalms. And uh, one of the major themes is found in that first quote. I've given it to you every week from Dr. Kendall Easley. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so we're reminded by that that the Psalms are uh, really a, a, a call to you and to me to praise God, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, and to trust God, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley. We're reminded of those two realities uh, constantly through our study of the Psalms. I like what John Piper writes. He says, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And that's why people love the Psalms so much, because we connect with the different emotions we find uh, throughout the pages of the Psalms. And so, we've made it to Psalm 75. I'm going to read it, then we're going to pray together. But notice it says, To the choir master, according to do not destroy. So apparently there was a tune out there called Do Not Destroy. I don't know what that tune was, but that's the name of the tune. And this same tune is uh, to be used over in uh, Psalm 57, 58, and 59. You can turn and see that same title there, uh, Do Not Destroy. And so there was a, 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 a melody, if you will, that was called Do Not Destroy, and these words were to be set to that music. It's just be like if I said, Amazing Grace. You know how the you know how the the the, the sound of Amazing Grace is, uh, and 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 they would all know this song. Do not destroy. But it says a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader in Israel. He was like uh, our Travis. Uh, he would lead the people, lead the instrumentalists, lead the choirs to praise God uh, during their corporate worship. And it says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. 
At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars, say law. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we just declare, Lord, uh, our need for you in this moment. Uh, Lord, we believe that uh, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We need you to illuminate your word for us. We need you, Lord, to incline our hearts to respond to what you show us so that we can live um, uh, transformed by your word. So, Lord, have your way in our midst, and Lord, not just in this study, in this room, but Lord, in, in all the different ministries going on, uh, Lord, uh, on this campus, we pray that you would just draw near and move with power and with grace. And we'll thank you and praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you ever have been told that something you want to know uh, is something that is on a need-to-know basis. You ever heard that phrase, need-to-know basis, which is basically someone's w- way of saying you don't need to know, right? And maybe in the workplace, maybe in your family, someone said that's, that's, that's a, you only get to know that on a need-to-know basis. Well, in the 75th Psalm, there are some realities, some truths about God that humanity needs to know, that us in this room, we, we need to know these things. These are very important realities about the Lord that if you don't understand these or get these, uh, your eternal uh, destinies at stake, your, uh, your, um, the, the quality of your life in terms of impact uh, on this earth is at stake. And so we need to, we need to know these things about God. And, and there are four truths about God that come from this psalm that you and I and all of humanity need to know. So what's the first truth about God that we need to know? You ready? God is in control. God is in control. Have you noticed that theme surfaces often in the book of Psalms? God is in control. He starts off in verse 1, Asaph, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. Uh, this first metaphor that we see, and there are three major metaphors throughout the psalm. There's the metaphor of pillars. There's the metaphor of horns. Uh, and there's the metaphor of a cup. So we'll talk about those metaphors as we work our way through. But the first metaphor is the metaphor of the pillar. And you understand what a pillar is. A pillar hold something up. A, a pillar uh, provi- provides stability. And this uh, verse teaches us, verse 3, that God assures stability when it feels like the world is spinning out of control. He, he starts the psalm by saying, we give thanks to you for your wondrous deeds. What wondrous deeds? We begin to talk about the wondrous deeds of God uh, in verse 2 when he says, Hey, there's coming a time when you're going to set everything right. You're going to judge the world with 
perfect equity. You're, you're going to come back and take care of everything. Uh, and then he says in verse 3, something interesting, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. In other words, when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, guess what? God's still keeping it together. God is keeping it stable. He's holding up the pillars that hold up our existence and hold up our world and hold up the cosmos. In other words, even when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, God assures stability. He is sovereign. He's in control. He never leaves his post by the pillars. He's always holding the pillars up. He's always assuring stability. So even when it doesn't look from our perspective like things are in control or, or things aren't good, God is in Control And one day he's going to come back and set everything right. Now that's a needed word, isn't it? As we think about the events of this uh, past uh, week, we think about Texas and we think about Las Vegas and, and, and just all the crazy things happening out there in our world. We think about the threat of North Korea. We, you know, there, there's all, there are all these things. Terrorism, you know, the, the guy on the bike path in New York. There's all, there's all these scary things happening all around us. And we're thinking, man, things are... Things are crazy, but listen to me, God is in perfect control. Uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say that there's not a rogue molecule in the universe. God's calling the shots. Even when it doesn't look like it, God is in control. He's working everything together for, for good and for, uh, for our good and for His ultimate glory. When, when the dust settles on human history, we'll all sit back and say, Wow. God, you really were weaving it all together. You really were in control. Now, we look at the world and think, God, will you just come back and just, just fix it all? Would you just come back and just, and just stop this madness? Well, that's why verse 2 is important. As we see things looking topsy-turvy from our perspective, verse 2 says, At the set time that I appoint, this is the Lord speaking, I will judge with equity. And so God's going to set everything right. He's going to set everything right on His timetable. But here's the next truth you see there in your notes. We dare not mistake His patience for tolerance. We dare not mistake His patience for tolerance. In other words, yes, things seem crazy from our perspective. We wonder when God's going to come back and judge the world with equity. That day is coming, but it's coming when God decides it's supposed to happen, right? But just because He is not actively bringing humanity to conclusion and showing His power and glory, just because that hasn't happened yet in its totality doesn't mean God doesn't care. And doesn't mean that God will not judge uh, the earth. And so, we dare not mistake his patience for tolerance. Uh, over in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, some people began to scoff at Christians in the first century. Because Christians of the first century believed, just like you and I believe, that one day Jesus will come back. And Christians of the first century say, we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We're going through difficult times. And one day Jesus is going to come back and set everything right. And some time began to pass. Years uh, turned into decades. And, and people began to say, where's the promise of His coming? I thought you said Jesus is coming back. He, he hasn't come back yet. And over in 2 Peter 3, the Bible says uh, to, to the Christians, don't mistake 
the, the, the Lord's slowness in returning and setting everything right as slackness. God's still going to set everything right. He's still going to judge with perfect equity, but He's delaying His return. He's delaying that moment of ultimate judgment. You know why? The Bible says, so that more people can come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. And so, uh, this verse reminds us that God is going to judge everything, but we dare not mistake His patience for tolerance. It's going to happen on His timetable, and He will set everything right. Hey, think of it this way. No one gets away with anything. God's going to judge, right? Which is, by the way, why we need a Savior, which we'll get to in a few minutes. So, God is in control. Secondly, God detests pride. This is something that we need to know, the humanity needs to know. God detests pride. Look what it says in verse 4. I say to the boastful, do not boast. To the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horns on high or speak with haughty neck. We see here, Another metaphor, the metaphor of the horn. The horn here uh, probably refers to uh, the, the animal world. It speaks of the horns of an animal. Uh, it, it, the, the horn in this time period uh, spoke of, of strength or dominance. Just like a, a certain animal that would have strength or dominance. That would have uh, horns. Animals like bulls or rams or, or goats, they had horns. And the, the, the idea of them having horns was, idea of, was the idea of them having strength. So when it says there in verse 4, do not lift up your own horn. Don't, don't, don't boast. Don't try to lift yourself up. Don't try, to, don't try to make yourself big and strong and dominant in God's eyes. That's not a wise move. Do not boast, the Bible says. I like what Michael Wilcock writes, Horns are a Bible metaphor. The horns are, are, are of powerful animals like the bull and the ram are in mind, and in a neutral sense they mean power, whether bad or good. Hence, verse 10 promises that the wicked will be defeated and the righteous come out on top. In a bad sense, the horns mean power that is pushy, thrusting, self-willed, and a word arrogant. The outstretched neck of verse 5, see what it says in verse 5, don't speak with a haughty neck. The outstretched neck of verse 5 is similarly, similarly that of a willful animal, refusing to be bridled or tame. So, uh, basically what the Lord's saying here with this metaphor of the horns and the haughty neck, the stubborn neck, is God is saying to humanity, don't, listen to me, don't, don't get too big for your britches. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't get haughty, don't get proud, don't get, don't get arrogant. Understand who you are, understand who I am, understand your station in life and society. Don't be haughty. Why? God detest pride. When you uh, search the Scriptures, some of the Lord's harshest rhetoric is reserved for the proud. Some of the most devastating things that God says are, are statements related to pride. God hates pride. He does. He hates pride. Now, what are three uh, ways, or here are three ways that pride often manifests itself in society, in our lives. How, how does pride show? How do we know that we're prideful? Well, first of all, arrogance. Verse 4, I said the boastful, do not boast. So these, these folks he's talking to were, were boasting. Now, just a little bit of historical context. Uh, there's some debate over what historical situation this psalm is referring to. Many scholars believe that this psalm refers to the Assyrians uh, 
who were attacking Jerusalem under the leadership of Sennacherib. And if you remember that story, it's in Isaiah and Kings. You remember that story when it looked like that Sennacherib's army was going to overrun Jerusalem on the night before they were going to make their final move. Uh, they got up in the morning and Sennacherib's army was devastated. 185,000 Assyrians died. God just took care of it. God went into the camp and, and killed 185,000 Samarians. And Sennacherib packed up and went home. And so they're thinking, this may be the situation it's referring to because Sennacherib was boasting about his power. He, in fact, he sent messengers to Jerusalem outside the walls to say, your God's not going to save you. Stop praying. Don't, don't listen to your, to your king and to your prophets. Your God's not going to save you. He didn't save the other nations I've conquered. And so they were very boastful and proud and arrogant. And this arrogance shows this, this pride that, that Sennacherib and the Assyrians thought they were, they were too big even to give uh, God uh, attention. And so arrogance is a way that pride manifests itself. Self-reliance is a way that pride manifests itself. Verse 4, to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. In other words, don't try to... Don't try to be self-reliant and make yourself strong by lifting up your horn, that, that, that metaphor for strength. Don't try to make yourself strong. Don't try to pick yourselves up by the bootstraps. Self-reliance is, a, is an indicator of pride. Uh, now, probably no one in this room tonight would be so arrogant as to say, God, I don't need you. I mean, we, hopefully we fear God enough to, say, to not say that, Right? None of us would say, God, I don't need you. That would just be arrogance. And so because we don't say that or wouldn't say that, we think, well, we don't have a problem with pride. But I wonder how many in this room might have a problem, starting with the preacher talking to you. I wonder how many in this room might have a problem with self-reliance. That, you know, I'm going to just try to make it through on my own, my own strength, my own wisdom, you know, and, and just kind of just make it through life, deal with my problems, deal with the circumstances uh, in my own strength. I'm going to rely on me and not rely upon God. You say, well, how do I know if I'm self-reliant? Your prayer life. Did you know that prayerlessness is the ultimate expression of self-dependence? Because when you don't pray regularly, when you don't, when you don't, uh, bring your concerns to the Lord. If you don't bring your life to the Lord, the old hymn says, you don't bring everything to God in prayer. If you don't do that, what you're saying to the Lord is, I got this. I got this. I don't need your help. Now, none of us would say I don't need your help, but when you don't pray, that's what you're saying, right? I don't need your help. So if prayerlessness is the ultimate expression of self-dependence and self-reliance, then Prayer, consistent prayer, is the ultimate expression of dependence. Where you're saying, Lord, I need you. And I believe that to such a degree that I'm going to call out to you and ask you for help. And so, self-reliance at its, at its essence is a form of pride, right? That you think you can do good enough on your own without God's activity in your life. That's pride, self-reliance. And he says, don't lift up your own horn. Third, opposition is an indicator of pride. Uh, do not lift up your horn on high, verse 5. Do not speak with a haughty neck. 
prideful, arrogant, stubborn is, is the idea here. And it, this probably speaks of the, the Assyrians, if this verse or this passage does speak of the Assyrians, of their, of their just opposition to God. They were, they were anti-God, anti the God of Israel, and had a stubbornness, an opposition to God. And, and in our society today, you see people that are just opposed to uh, the Lord. I saw people scoffing after this church shooting in Texas uh, took place, and uh, immediately the the conversation goes to politics, and the Republicans want to say their thing, and Democrats want to say their thing, and and uh, and and I heard people, you know, on on national media saying, "Hey, yeah, you're praying, but those folks still got shot. Your prayers didn't do any good. We need to stop praying and start in legislating some laws." That was people's uh, national media personality. That was their gut reaction. You don't need to do all that praying. You need to take action. As if praying is not taking action, right? And that's just arrogance. It's just pride. It's just opposition to the, to the ways of God. And it is, it is pervasive in our society. And, uh, and we need to be aware of that. And so, God detests pride. God detests pride. We need to realize that pride is interesting uh, because it sneaks up on you. Amen? Like, none of us get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be prideful today. I'm going to be self-reliant and arrogant and it's going to be all about me. Right? I mean, I hope none of you had that thought when you woke up this morning, right? It's sneaky. It sneaks up on you. And before you even know it, you're making decisions and interacting with people driven by your own pride and not from a perspective of walking with the Lord. And so God is in control. God detests pride. People need to understand that. And here's the third thing or third truth about God that people need to know. The proud will experience devastating judgment. Look what it says in verse 6. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. From the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This verse uses another metaphor. We've seen the metaphor of the pillar. We've seen the metaphor of the horn. Now we see the metaphor of the cup. And the cup is used consistently through Scripture as a metaphor for God's judgment. And, and he's saying, just like a person would take a, a cup of, of some liquid and drink it down, he says, you're going to drink down God's devastating judgment if you persist in your pride. Now, we see two things here about God's judgment. God's judgment is deserved, verse 8. He says, all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. All the wicked of the earth shall drink from that cup. That cup of God's wrath. And it is uh, deserved. When you fast forward to the end of the Bible and you get to the uh, scene where you see the great white throne of judgment in Revelation, end of Revelation chapter 20, you know what you don't see? You don't see lawyers. You don't see people arguing with God. You don't see plea bargaining. You see the judge opening up the book of people's deeds and assigning them their eternal destiny in the lake of fire, separated from God forever. And, and on that day of judgment, before the great white throne, no, no one's going to say, I don't deserve judgment. It's going to be very, very clear in the presence of a holy God with the book of their deeds opened. Everything 
that that person who's standing before the judge on that day has ever done wrong, thought wrong, said wrong, is recorded in a book. That's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? You've heard me say this before, but who in this room would not be ashamed if a replay of your life was shown up on this screen tonight? You know? Let's just watch, you know, let's pick up some of the crowd and let's watch your life tonight. Those that do not know the Lord will one day stand before the Lord. and He will judge them according to their deeds. Revelation chapter 20. And, and the judgment will be just because of humanity's wickedness. He says there the wicked will drink it down to the dregs. Uh, secondly, God's judgment is complete. Verse 8, the wicked will drain it to the dregs. In other words, they will experience the totality of God's wrath and judgment forever. It, it's, it's God's unrelenting wrath poured out upon the wicked and that torment, that wrath, the Bible teaches, will never come to an end. So if someone dies and goes to hell, is assigned the lake of fire by the judge, they will be in that condition forever. Conscious torment and wrath separated from God forever. That's why it's called hell. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant place. You ever heard someone say, well, hey, I, when, when, I, when I go to hell, I'm going I'm to get up with my buddies. We're going to have a party down in hell. You ever heard somebody say that? Wrong answer. Wrong answer. It will be devastating judgment. Deserved and devastating judgment. God's judgment is complete. And again, the context here, he's talking about the prideful. The ones that think they don't need the one true God. They don't need the God of Israel. They, 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 they don't fear Him. They're living for themselves. And He's saying if you persist in that condition, you turn your back to the one true God, you will drink the cup of God's wrath completely. That's what He's saying. And we see again this judgment against pride all throughout the Bible. For example, turn to Proverbs chapter 11 with me. Right after the book of Psalms, you get to Proverbs. And look in Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. In other words, people that live a prideful life thinking they do not need the Lord, it doesn't end well. Uh, Turn to chapter 16, verse 5. Chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow, that's strong language. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Turn to chapter, or look at verse 18 and 19, that same chapter of chapter 16. Pride goes before what? Destruction or fall. Haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Uh, Turn to chapter 18 of Proverbs, verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And then turn to Proverbs 29. Verse 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. One's pride will bring him low. In other words, uh, if people persist in 
in prideful, arrogant living, thinking they do not need the Lord, they do not fear the Lord, then destruction is coming. It does not end well. And this is kind of abstract. We're talking about kind of the pride in abstract form. But there are a couple of examples in the Bible that kind of drive these truths home about God's devastating judgment for the proud. The first one I want you to see is Pharaoh over in Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 5 with me. Exodus chapter 5. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You think that's pride? Yes striking pride and arrogance. And as you journey through Exodus, you see the devastating consequences he endured because of this decision. The plagues, the death of his firstborn son, the loss of his entire army. I mean, he went through great catastrophe because of his pride. He would not listen to the Lord's spokesman and do what God told him to do. And then turn to Acts chapter 12. Let me show you a New Testament example. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This took place in Caesarea. Uh, I've been there with a few folks out there. Uh, That's very spot in Caesarea, this amphitheater that Herod uh, had built in the first century. And, and they showed us a spot where he would have um, delivered this speech that it mentions here in the text. And on a day, he, he got his special robe out. Uh, Josephus uh, tells us that the robe had a reflective quality to it. So the sun shone off of his robe and it was very impressive. It was almost like he was shining. He was speaking. The people needed Herod. They needed his favor as a king so they could get the food. And, and so they were crying out, he's, he's a God, not a man. And Herod was enjoying the adulation. He was enjoying the applause, enjoying the, the preeminence and not giving glory to God. So what does God do? What's it say there? It says he struck him down. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You think pride bothers the Lord? Yeah, I would say so. Eaten by worms? And so those are just two examples of the devastating effect that pride has when God does sin, when they cross the line and God does send his judgment. But turn back with me to Psalm 75. We want to close on an encouraging note. Psalm 75. We're looking at some truths that that folks need to know. 
We need to know that God is in control. We need to know that God detests pride. We need to know the proud will experience devastating judgment. And fourth and last, we need to know that salvation is available to those who see their need for it. Because it's kind of a bleak picture, right? Because he speaks of the prideful. Hey, look at me real quick. I've been prideful before. Anybody in here ever struggle with pride? Yeah. Uh, He mentions the wicked. I've done, some, I've done some wicked things. Anybody in this room ever done any wicked? I'm the only one that's ever sinned against a holy God. Yeah. We all have, right? Anybody want to share tonight? It's just, just kidding. <laughs> We're all wicked. And it doesn't look so good for the prideful wicked in this passage, right? Is there any hope? I mean, is there any good news? Is there any gospel here? Well, look how the, uh, the psalm closes. But, verse 9, he talks of God's devastating judgment against the, the prideful, the wicked. But, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. In other words, there is another category. There are those who believe in the Lord, who follow the Lord, who live for the Lord, who are made righteous by the Lord, and they are lifted up by God. Those who lift themselves up will be humbled, the Bible says. Those who humble themselves before God, God will lift up. Right? He's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so those that see their need for the one true God, those that turn to the one true God, true God don't experience God's judgment, they experience God's grace. Which is why I love, it's always moving to me, always, when I see the title in the Psalms, God of Jacob. I mean, he could have said, I'll sing praises to the God of Abraham, right? Or I'll sing praises to the God of Isaac. Why Jacob? Well, you remember Jacob? Jacob was a deceiving trickster. A manipulator. You're talking about pride and arrogance? I mean, Jacob was a prideful man. It was all about him. The world revolved around him until one night God got his attention. He wrestled with the angel, which I believe was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, but that's an entirely different sermon. And he, and, and he has that moment where he's, he's encountered by the Lord and he's transformed. He's, he's different after that. And, and he comes to know the Lord personally and he is saved and he's made righteous by God. There's a huge difference in his life. And, 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 and it calls God here the God of Jacob. That's grace, right? If, if God can be Jacob's God, he can be any of our God. If he can save Jacob, he can save us, right? The God of Jacob. And so, this verse speaks of those who know the Lord. That's why it starts in verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Your name is near. We have a relationship with you. We're not far off like Sennacherib and the, the Assyrians that have that have turned their back to you. We know you. We believe in you. We worship you. You are our God. So there's a difference there. But here's the deal. How can wicked, prideful people like us in this room, how can we be saved? How can we get away with not drinking the cup of God's wrath? Answer? Someone took the cup for us and drank it down so we don't have to. Well, who drank the cup of God's wrath? Well, turn with me to John chapter 18. 
Oh, it gets good right here. John 18. This is after Jesus is betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane and Peter cuts off the high priest's servant's ear and Jesus immediately heals his ear. And in verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm in control here, Peter. I don't need you to start fighting with the sword. I've come for this purpose. And I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath so that those who believe in me will not have to drink of that cup. They can be saved. I'm going to take God's wrath in their place. Which helps us understand the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Right before this episode, remember Jesus is praying? And He's, he's, he's feeling the, the weight of what he was about to encounter. He was going to become sin for us and take the wrath of his Father in our place. And he's staggering in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, Is there any other way? Let this, what? Cup pass from me. Jesus understood how devastating the prospect was to drink the cup of God's wrath. And he was, he was struggling with deep mental anguish. That's the word used in Garden of Gethsemane. He was struggling with deep mental anguish there in that garden, knowing what was coming. Is there any other way? And of course we know the answer. There was no other way. There was silence from heaven. And so when Jesus gets up from his prayer and he's betrayed, he is now fully resolute. He's saying, I am ready to drink the cup. The cup of God's wrath. So listen to me. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, you and I don't have to. If we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, hey, it's already, the, the cup's already been taken away. Jesus already drank it all for us. He took God's punishment completely for us. Isn't that good news? And so back in Psalm 75, God is in control and God detests pride and the proud will experience devastating judgment. But salvation is available to those, watch this, who see their need for it. Those that lay down their pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency and self-reliance and self-dependence and say, I need a Savior. I need some help. I need grace. I need mercy. I need love. I need rescue. I need redemption. I need renewal. I need transformation. I, I need the Lord. And those that recognize their need and call on the name of Jesus Christ will experience blessed salvation forgiveness, eternal life, relationship with God. But those that persist in their pride, those that think that they are beyond needing God, will experience devastating judgment. As you, most of you know, I was uh, in uh, Western Europe recently uh, with Claire and, and uh, a team from this church, Travis and Nikki, and we went with, with the, the Perkins and... Um, Basically, the, the attitude of the people we came across in Europe that we were able to have conversations with was, we're beyond the whole God thing. 
We're we're kind of enlightened past that point of needing religion as a crutch or needing to go to church or needing to believe certain things or dogmas or 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 belief systems. We're we're kind of beyond that. We've kind of we've kind of we've kind of you know we've kind of grown up a little bit and we're we're enlightened and we don't we don't really need all that stuff. That's kind of the attitude of Western Europe. It's it's kind of like just kind of indifferent to the things of God because they don't think they need it. They don't think they need it. And uh, this this psalm. It, it, it shares some important truths that folks need to know. We desperately need the Lord. Amen? That's what this psalm reminds us of. I'm going to pray for us in a moment before we do that. Any, any questions or comments from psalm uh, or questions? Comments are always dangerous. Any, uh, <laughs> any questions on Psalm 75 before we close? Any questions tonight? Anything I've said tonight that, that you that you have? Any questions? Or would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? I want to give you a chance to to pray. If you're in here and you're a believer in Christ. Uh, would you just take a, just a few moments and just thank Jesus for drinking the cup of God's wrath for you? Peter, put away your sword. This is why I came. I came to drink the cup. Because he drank the cup. Because he died on the cross in our place. Because he took the wrath of God that you and I deserve. We can experience forgiveness, eternal life. Wow. It's amazing love that Jesus took God's wrath for us. Would you tell him thank you? Maybe you're here tonight and you say, wait, I don't know if I have that settled or nailed down. and Maybe I've just been trying to kind of make it through life without the Lord and I need to get that nailed down. Well, I want to encourage you when we're through, just uh, grab me, grab somebody close there beside you and say, I need to talk to somebody about the Lord. And we would love to just... just uh, walk you through some truths from God's Word, answer any questions that you have, and would love to just um, lead you to a place where you call upon the name of Jesus, asking Him to be your Lord and Savior. So if you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody tonight. That's why we're here. We would love uh, to talk to you. But if you have that nailed down, would you just, just say thank you? Just praise His great name. Would you pray for hurting families in Texas? A church, small church has just been devastated. Just pray for those that are ministering in that situation and providing for needs in that situation. Would you just ask God to just draw near? What the What the enemy means for evil, God can use for good. So would you ask God to just use this for good? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
We love you. We praise you. We adore you. We exalt you. And we are grateful tonight for Jesus. We're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful, Lord, for the way you worked in our lives by your Spirit, showing us our need for a Savior. So we just uh, we give you praise and honor and glory tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. Help us to be urgent, Lord. We know that one day you're going to come back and set everything right. But every day that you tarry is a day you are demonstrating your forbearance, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Lord, may we be, as a church, as followers of Christ, may we be urgent about sharing this good news in our community and all around the world. If Psalm 75 does anything for us, Lord, it should increase our sense of urgency in sharing with a lost and dying world that, that people need Jesus. So God, would you just do that work in our lives? And we'll thank you for that. We pray, Lord, for those in Texas and, Lord, still those in, in Las Vegas. That was just a short time ago as well. People that are picking up the pieces. Uh, Lord, grief. Um, Lord, um, sadness, confusion, fear, anxiety. Lord, I pray that during this time in our nation where everything seems topsy-turvy, God, I pray that you would just remind us you're in control. And Lord, that you would remind us that what we do as a church really matters. The gospel is the only hope. God, remind us that what we do, Lord, through gathering and through inviting and through sharing and following up and loving and serving, God, it really matters. Lord, you use this church to affect change, starting in our community, by your grace and for your glory. And we'll thank you and praise you, Lord, for that. We love you tonight and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.